0: Welcome to Today on Broadway for Friday, September 11th, 2020. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini.
1: And I'm arts and culture writer Ashley Steves, And I'm arts and culture writer
2: Alicia Ramirez.
0: First and foremost, we would be remiss if we did not first acknowledge that today is the 19th anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks in which 2,977 people died in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. For me, because I'm old enough to remember this far better than you two youngins are, remembering that tragedy through our 2020 lens reveals both the best and worst of what we can be as a collective American people. Mm -hmm. In the immediate aftermath, we rallied behind our fellow citizens who were most suffering. We shared their fear and their anger because it was our fear and anger. We also found a solidarity in our shared humanity that helped us be our best, albeit temporarily. However, as time wore on, despite the mantra of never forget, we did forget. We moved on from the lessons that we had learned, and we left the victims behind to fend for themselves. Citizens forgot them. Politicians ignored them. Unfortunately, this darker, more cynical side of our response has become the standard for how we have collectively addressed our latest national tragedy almost two decades later. As our national death toll from the coronavirus pandemic inches closer to 200,000 lives lost, I hope that somehow, some way, we can defy the confines of our current political reality and rise to the levels of our response from the early aftermath of 9-11 and work together to find solutions to our collective suffering. Now, I won't be holding my breath, as I am far less optimistic about my fellow Americans than I was in 2001, but it is only when we run out of hope and give up on the possibility of a better world That our lives become darkest. So I am choosing to hold on to the last, tiniest shred of optimism. That we can overcome our basest instincts and actually give a damn about our fellow neighbors. Not Mm. just the ones that look like us and agree with us, but all of them. Okay, Ashley and Alicia. Now that I've got my personal very point of privilege out of the sad. way,
1: yes, very yeah. beautifully said, Mister Tamanene. Eh? All right. Well, thank
0: you. I'm old enough to uh, have that perspective. Someday, when you two are old enough to be uh, as ancient as I am, perhaps you can think <laughs> this.
1: Yeah, way. we'll be able to talk about <laughs> other disasters. I'm sure. Yeah. Great. Unfortunately, <laughs>
0: yeah. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to stick to the sadder side of things to start today's show. As yesterday, we learned that the legendary star of stage and screen, Dame. Diana Rigg, passed away at the age of 82. The 1994 Tony Award winner for Medea had been diagnosed with cancer in March, according to her daughter. Now, from a theatrical perspective, she appeared on Broadway a total of four times, in 1971 in Abelard and Heloise, in 1975 in The Misanthrope, in 1994 as Medea, and in 2018 as Mrs. Higgins in My Fair Lady. She was nominated for a Tony Award in all four of her performances on The Main Stem. Additionally, she rose to fame in the TV series The Avengers, no relation to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. She also became the only woman to marry James Bond on screen in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And she played, and Ashley, you're going to have to correct me here because I don't watch Game of Thrones. She played Olena Tyrell.
1: Yeah, Alana Tyrell.
0: Okay, she played that on Game of Thrones, and she oh, was also the best. Well, there you go. She was also a regular on stage in the UK for her entire career. She was nominated for eight Emmy awards, winning one. She also had a BAFTA and multiple Olivier awards. She is survived by her daughter Rachel Sterling. Now, Ashley and Alicia, she maintained her edge all the way uh, until the yes. end. Yes, in fact, calling out her my fair lady co-star. Lauren oh Ambrose God. in 2018 yeah, I for dropping.
1: That. Do you remember? Yes. Yeah, from eight
0: performances to just seven per week without telling the rest of the cast. Whoops. Ashley, you being the only person that I know of uh, on this okay. show that watched uh, Game of Thrones, um, what was your your thoughts of? Uh, of Dame Diana Ritt.
1: Oh, she basically played herself in the show. She was, like, no-nonsense uh matriarch who, uh, you know, for fans of the show, know that she killed the awful, awful King Joffrey and was like... Tell-, alert, but, "Yeah, okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh Get on <laughs> that, I guess. Uh, and was like, tell Cersei that I'm the one who did it. And that was her dying words. Like, she was just a badass, and she was amazing in everything she did. She was so no-nonsense. I loved her. The only time I got to see her was in My Fair Lady, obviously. Um, I completely forgot about the Lauren Ambrose debacle. And uh, that, I mean, to be honest, that happening, uh, Diana Rigg calling her out, stands out more to me than Lauren Ambrose's performance. But that's another Sandra, story. Sandra. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Alicia, do you have any uh, uh thoughts about uh Diana Rigg?
2: I only saw her in My Fair Lady, so my my memories of Diana Rigg are fairly limited, but I I must say you you must have guts to call out your co-star from eight performances to seven <laughs> and Seriously? you at your age are doing eight. It's like no. Yeah. You, you yeah. go to Dame Diana Rigg. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think back at the time we were like, well, did she really need to go to Michael Riedel and talk about this? But-
1: she you can know do what? whatever she
0: wants. She can do whatever the hell she yeah. wants. But, Long of course, lift. Godspeed to Dame Diana Rigg, and our thoughts are with everybody who loved her, both as a person and a performer. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's move on to a much different type of story, but one that has occupied the majority of the theatrical discussion on Thursday, and this is why we are going three-wide for yeah. the first time in this configuration, because <laughs> it is major news. It was first announced by his New York Times colleague, Michael Paulson, that Ben Brantley, the Grey Lady's chief theater critic for 24 years, will be stepping down on October 15th. Brantley said, quote, this pandemic pause in the great energizing party that is the theater seemed to me like a good moment to slip out the door. Don't let it hit you where the good Lord split you, Ben. But (laughs) when the theater returns, this has been again. I hope to be there as a writer, an audience member, and above all, the stark raving fan I have been since I was a child. Paulson also revealed that without much live theater happening currently, the Times will not be in any hurry to fill the second critic spot alongside Jesse Green. However, that did not prevent many people from discussing who they believe should get the gig. We will get to that um, now, personally, I have read dozens, probably approaching a hundred or so of Brantley's reviews here on Today on Broadway over the past four and a half years, and I think my opinions on him are well known. I think that he is incredibly insightful about a very specific type of play, written by a very specific type of person in a very particular time, starring a certain type of performer. <laughs> may, Don't get may, him started on a show Kelly with Kelly O'Hara yeah. <laughs> yeah, my lord. He loves Kelly O'Hara even more yeah. than James does, but... <laughs> Outside of those very narrow confines, I find that he is often more of a detriment to the discussion Correct. about the piece than is than he is a proponent or even a champion. Amongst the names being most widely banding about to replace Brantley are current New York Times cultural critic fellow Maya Phillips, the undefeated cultural critic Soroya McDonald, the New York Times' Wesley Morris, and even our friend Deep Tran. Now, Ashley, I'll start with you, because you and I have talked about Ben Brantley a lot here uh-huh. on this show. Um But before we get into who should replace Benny, do you have any thoughts just that you want to get off your chest about (laughs) his decision to leave
1: Uh, the position as a a New York Times theater critic? Yeah, first of all. I would like to preface this by saying Ben Brantley has held a position I would never want and do not envy, and that front and public facing positions, especially of that caliber, gather such a storm of their own criticism around it that I cannot even begin to imagine
0: very fair. Thank you for saying that. Yes.
1: But that being said, <laughs> I have not been quiet in being one of those critics of Ben Brantley and his work. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to allow Stephen Trask to serve as my anger translator in all this because <laughs> of everything that he got to say on Thursday. And that's pretty much good enough for me. But what I will say is, we simply it's it, first of all it's 2020. We simply do not have the time to go back through his in my opinion too long career to point out every instance of misogyny, racism, transphobia, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. I personally will never forgive him for the transphobic crap he pulled in his head over heels review of which he never properly apologized and which was, what, a whole two years ago? I think his reviews have, as you said, those that haven't fit a very specific writer star type of show, etc. I think his reviews have ranged from negligent to outright harmful, as per the last example. Often unnecessarily rude. I I occasionally like a review that rips something to shreds and does so well, not gonna lie. One of my favorite reviews of all time is from Frank Rich on Starlight Express, which he (laughs) called. something like confusing jamboree of piercing noise misogyny and orwellian effects that's the perfect gift for a kid who has everything except parents and yes i have that memorized you have it tattooed on you somewhere my lord (laughs) yes it's all the way down my leg uh if that's your whole personality though as it often seems for brantley it's callous and tiresome As far as criticism, I think the position has changed, and I think criticism has changed. There was certainly a point where a Times review would make or break a show. I absolutely still think it has leverage, but nowhere near other than marketing power. Power, if it's a rave... I think as we see with many of our colleagues and Brantley's colleagues and Hilton Ailes and Helen Shaw and Soraya McDonald and on and on, there's a point of view, there's analysis, there's care in their writing, and they go beyond just show analysis and into culture analysis into analysis of a, cur- a current point in time. My biggest question when I work, and thankfully I don't do much criticism anymore than when I first started out in theater uh, is why do we need this thing now and who does it best serve not this doesn't work for anybody and we don't need it. I don't agree with that monolithic style, and I don't think Brantley is the only person at the Times currently or previously that has operated that way. We'll not name other names, but I'm yeah, also... We will. Hold on. I will. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I'm also well on the record of having named those people. But uh, reporters don't have to rush back to their offices to write their reviews at Bows anymore, and if you're writing reads like you do, if there's no care in what you write and you're not willing to learn and adapt, uh, then you've overstayed your welcome in a profession that has stayed around you or that has changed around you. And yeah. it's very clearly time to step aside for someone who is willing to work with those around them.
0: Wow. I, uh, I, I asked if you had anything to get off your chest. You I, have did. I
1: have opinions.
0: <laughs> yeah, I will just to, just to put some things into uh, uh, context that I actually mentioned, she talked mm-hmm. about composer, Steven Trask. He had a rather lengthy, uh, social media posts, I will just read in part. He said, mm-hmm. with his retirement announced, it is now safe to say that ultimately this man is utterly irrelevant to the art form and always has been. You can read the rest of it. I'll have a link in the show notes. <laughs> Brantley's former colleague, Charles Isherwood, which you may or may not have just referenced, uh, said on social yeah. media, quote, So saddened by today's big news, Century 21 <laughs> is closing all stores.
1: Um, a, little, a, shade. a little shady now, out here, yeah.
0: Now, Alicia, obviously the paper of record likely won't be asking us for our opinions. But if they did, who would you like to see get this job? Either a specific person or people, um, or just like the type of traits you would like to see this critic critic have?
2: Sure. Um, I agree with you guys um, in Deep and Maya and Soraya, but I I just have to add... To Ashley's point, um, I think the New York Times is known for being too white, too old, and too safe. And I think this was the best way for Ben Brantley to exit. And in terms of qualities for the person taking on this job, I just would hope that they are um, willing to start or continue conversations within the New York Times of what can be done in helping our field achieve equity. And most importantly, go with the purpose of opening doors for those of us who are not allowed to enter just yet. Definitely.
0: Along those lines, there was a really great Twitter thread uh, in which fellow New York theater critic David Cody discussed some of the things that he hopes that the new critic brings to the job and then commits to once that person is in the job, it's a really interesting way to look at what the New York Times theater critic position could be. I, I recommend you all check that out. It will be in the show notes. Um, it uh, looks at it in a little bit of a different way than I uh, than I would have thought about it. I am on the record. I was shocked that um, we were doing today on Broadway. I was shocked when Jesse Green got this job. Mm-hmm. I did. I did not believe. That they would just hire another white man for this position. I think you and I did
1: that show, and I think you and I did that show, and we were not. No, that was was more than a year ago. We've. Uh, I don't. I don't even remember. I don't either. We've certainly talked about our disdain for
0: that a lot. And and so, I am not going to say. That it's obvious they're going to either have a person of color or and or a woman because it's the New York Times and I'm not going to you know fool me once shame on me fool me twice shame on mm. I don't know whatever anyway but I I will be I will more than likely completely write off the New York Times if they hire another white man for
2: this yeah, position. And Matt, about uh, to your point. I feel like for the New York Times there are writers of color. Er, In the theater section, but it feels like they're there to meet a quota and not to be the norm, and I don't see the New York Times changing that in the near future. I I can only hope. Yeah, which is why
0: I'm not going to – which is why I'm not going to go out on a limb and guarantee it because I I don't have much faith Mm -hmm. in them doing that, but I just – I I, I can't imagine how you can look at the world as it is now, especially the theater scene. That's what I was
1: going to say. I can't imagine after months of conversation talking about Black Lives Matter and, you know, theater organizations at least, you know, talking (laughs) about changing Mm -hmm. their leadership structure. If the Times is just going to completely ignore that, especially when I, you know, they've discussed Sure. everything over the last few months so they're profiting on that so if they're going to profit on it and then absolutely just turn their backs to it and hire another white man I have absolutely no interest in reading what they have to say no, I agree I barely do now <laughs> we read it
0: because it's at the top of our uh, review yeah, roundup. we kind of have to but, yeah. I mean for me the thing is is that I understand that and This might go to what you were talking about, Alicia, that I understand that in every business, and the New York Times is a business, I have no problem with with them running it like a business. I understand you have to appeal to your customer base, and the standard customer base of the New York Times is older, wealthier, white people. I totally get that. However... In the theater section specifically, you have a much different mandate as the New York Times than you do in A, literally any other paper in the country, and B, in any other section in the New York Times itself. You are a thought leader and a cultural uh, gatekeeper in that, and if you refuse to change... With the art form that you are covering, as that art form continues to change and adapt and grow, um, exactly. your exactly. relevance completely fades as far as I'm concerned. So I'm hoping that Scott Heller, who is the, the editor of that section and other people who are making this decision, look at the world, not just, a uh, you know, in total, but in the theater world and how the discussions have been shaped recently. And they bring on at least one person. Uh, I, I'll be honest with you. It, I, I love Wesley Morris. I love, uh, you know, obviously Jose Solis, if He's been mentioned a couple times. It has to be, uh, to me, it has to be at least a woman of color. Uh, Agreed. you know, if, if you can get a, if you can, you know, get a hat trick and get a queer woman of color, that would be even better. Um, or, or perhaps, a, you know, not necessarily a woman, but maybe even, uh, somebody who is non-binary. I, I just, I don't think we can continue to bury our heads in the sand and keep assuming that the same thing that the New York times has done for generations is, um, is going to happen. I will note that the only time that there has been a co chief theater critic, for the New York Times was Margot Jefferson, who resigned mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. 2004 after holding the job for just six months. So I feel like it, <sighs> it's negligent if they don't bring on a woman. And I'll be honest with you, I would love to see them bring on multiple people at this point. You can have one be a chief person, but they should be investing, especially at this time in promoting the other Theater that is happening in New York, rather than just the major nonprofits. Absolutely,
1: in absolutely, mm-hmm. and not even just in New York. I think there has to be an interest in what's happening across the pond. I think there and has to be was, an that interest. That was one in of was, David
0: Cody's things as well. Oh,
1: sweet, I didn't see that thread, so I'm glad we're at least on the same page.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. um Alicia, you are the newest person to our group, so you have had less mm-hmm. to say over the time about the New York Times, Ben Brantley, and and and. Criticism. Is there anything as a, a, a cultural and arts writer of color? And I don't know how much criticism you do, uh, but is there anything else that you are hoping comes out of this, this opening, whether it's in terms of a shift in coverage or anything else that you think will benefit the, the position and the art form of theater and theater criticism as a whole?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it's definitely shown us to be more thoughtful and more critical of our own work, not just um, what we read, let's say, the New York Times in this case. Um, I We can't deny how influential the New York Times has been for the community. Totally. Um, for example, mm-hmm. I when I moved from Puerto Rico to Philadelphia to go to college, I started learning about Broadway and I read the New York Times just just to learn more about it. And Peter and the Starcatcher, reviewed by Ben Brantley, mm. ended up being my first Broadway show. There you go. <laughs> but at the end of the day, um we have to challenge these publications to do better, mm-hmm. not just to bring in representation for representation's sake. And hopefully we can just carry that throughout and give space to publications that are less known yeah. that can impart something of equal or greater ba- value for let's say a pull quote.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to that in this discussion of bringing in some sort of diversity into the role, I think the idea of age diversity is also important. I know mm-hmm. we mentioned sure. the fact that, um, you know, the audience for the New York times is often older and I get that. And I understand that to have the opportunity to be the, a, a Chief theater critic or just the a theater critic of the New York Times is a huge deal. And you don't want somebody who's, you know, has no experience. But bringing in a diversity of ideas is not just about race and gender. It's also about age. And I think as sure. theater has skewed more um, adventurous off Broadway than it is on right, Broadway, having right. somebody who understands mm-hmm. that mentality is a little younger and brings a different perspective um, is important. And I also would love to see. I would love to see Jesse Green work with whoever this new person is to kind of vary how they do things. I don't think we need mm-hmm. just one per- person reviewing the show. I would be very interested in having two people reviewing shows or doing shorter reviews and pairing them together, coming up with ways mm-hmm. to, to just change their whole – Uh, Standard operating procedure. I think this is an opportunity. We've talked about this from the very beginning. This is the time for the theater community as a whole and the major institutions in it to make changes. And hopefully, this is the beginning of the New York Times doing just that. Definitely. For sure. All right. A couple real quick bits of news and then some self congratulatory stuff that I want to mention oh, at the God. end. First up, <laughs> settle down, settle down. Um, on Thursday, the New York Times reported that due to the ongoing health crisis, theatrical works that were streamed online and shows that were scheduled to be staged during 2020, but were subsequently canceled due to the global pandemic will now be eligible for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2021. In a joint statement, the Prize's co-chairs said, quote, The spread of the COVID virus has closed theaters, but has in no way dampened the creativity of the nation's playwrights. In this year of all years, we wanted to honor the work that is being done. The shows are going on if the audience is remote. I'm all for this, folks. I mm-hmm. can't imagine how difficult it's going to be to oversee and coordinate yeah, this. Uh, yep. But I'm always appreciative of organizations adapting as current circumstances dictate. So
2: mm-hmm. uh, good
0: for the Pulitzer folks.
2: Yeah, and also, they're known for adapting um, requirements, for example, for the mm-hmm. books category. Oh, self-published yeah. paperback and hardcovers are eligible. So I'm glad this is expanding to another category.
0: Yeah, so, uh, some of those other awards, <clears throat> Tony's, could learn how to be flexible, uh, like some of their, uh, uh prestigious brethren as well.
1: But Weird how seemingly easy it is. I know,
0: <laughs> to just, God, just yeah, to make not. A change. Yeah, weird. Oh, my Lord. I freaking hate them all. Anyway, um, <laughs> finally in the news section, in what is expected to be a precedent setting ruling, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has written a new chapter of law. Regarding nonfiction works after a copyright win for the producers of Jersey Boys, according to The Hollywood Reporter. In 2007, Donna Corbello filed a lawsuit against the musical claiming that the show infringed on the autobiography of Four Seasons member Tommy DeVito that her husband had ghostwritten but was never published. Yesterday, the ninth circuit panel ruled in favor of the Jersey boys producers and is now adopting what the panel of judges calls an asserted truths doctrine, which will hinder a copyright owner from filing an infringement suit on authors who quote built freely on a work that was factual. Now this kind of falls into me. One of those things where you can't copyright a fact, um, but they're not, her claim was not in terms of the, Uh, Of the fact, I think from what I understand when this was originally filed, the claim was in how it was broken down into each of the, you know, kind of having it broken down in four seasons of the book. Um, But I think that's a, this is a fairly obvious
1: thing to uh, me. Yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. that's quite a stretch. But uh,
0: especially for something that was never published. Although, if I do believe the writers of Jersey Boys were aware of the book. Um, so they did have some knowledge that it existed. It wasn't just like somebody had it in a drawer and no one sure. ever knew about it. But
1: sure. Yeah. Weird.
0: Weird. Yeah. All right. So my recommendation is a bit of a pat on the back, even though <sighs> I really had very little to do with it. Okay. But on Thursday, Helen Shaw, who we mentioned earlier, a great uh, theater critic, she um, she tweeted something out that had to do with the our discussion about gender reveal parties and all that stuff. She said, Quote, directors, this is just the cue you need to go full gender reveal party at the end of your next twelfth night. I want Viola to gather everyone around a cake, Orsino cuts it dramatically, and Whammo is pink inside, and then pieces are handed around to the audience. Now I, of course, being the dumb person that I am, replied <laughs> talking about our recent um meme, but what if Viola was actually cake? <laughs>
1: Absolutely which, hate it. Thanks.
0: <laughs> which Thanks. got some incredibly funny responses. Not a not a bunch, but Helen Shaw replied. Um, some some other folks uh, responded uh, as well. Helen Sh- said, "Everybody gets cut open. Everyone is secretly cake, except Malvolio, who they cut, and he's a real person, and it hurts him." Curtain. I'll um, take that. I'll take yeah. that. Marcia, uh, writer Marissa Scudleric, um, she said, quote, Portia wins the trial in Merchant by revealing that Antonio is actually cake and therefore contains no flesh, then reveals that she is a cake with pink icing inside, then they prick Shylock and he bleeds Finn. So there are some very (laughs) funny responses in this Twitter thread. There's not a ton of them, but uh, I was very proud of my very not intelligent response uh getting some very smart people to make some very funny jokes
1: i am uh, on twitter as i typically am during the show to make sure nothing chaotic has happened and i'm just hovering over the unfollow button on your account oh how dare you
2: (laughs) oh no (laughs) just
1: just gotta say just gotta say
0: it was it was funny. I'm,
1: it was I, funny. I'm proud of it. Yeah, it, was. I, it was fun. Don't encourage him, Alicia. <laughs> <laughs> Please.
2: No, you know what this reminds me of? Mm. Something rotten.
1: oh uh, <laughs> I always want to be reminded of something rotten. It's a good. <sighs> show.
2: Wasn't that I show love fun? I Something
1: Rotten. I forgot you loved that show so much. <laughs> I, lo- I saw Something Rotten eight times. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I saw it a lot. Like an obsessive amount. Never never but known you to be you obsessive do? about anything. Who is your Shakespeare? Uh, Christian Borle, of course. Okay, so you didn't see it with Will Chase. I did not see it with Will Chase. I managed to see Christian Borle in it every single time somehow. So I, did I, I saw Adam there Pascal on tour, so ooh, which was always well, interesting. Not, yeah. ooh, not cool. bad. Not bad. No.
0: All right, folks. This was a long <laughs> episode for some obviously important reasons. Uh, but that is all that we have to close out this week. Thank you for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, if you dare, at BWW. Mm-mm.
1: Matt, Ashley, oh. where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. At no, this is Ashley. Alicia, what about you?
2: People can find me on Twitter and Instagram at aramirascar31.
0: All right. We will, of course, have this week on Broadway on Sunday. Who knows if James is going to drop in some somebody else's random podcasts in the feed uh, in the meantime. But have a wonderful uh, weekend, everybody. Again, um, our thoughts are with everybody for whom today, September 11th, is... Uh, especially difficult. Um, We will be back with you on Sunday for this week on Broadway, and then some combination of the three of us will be back to talk to you on Monday.
1: All of us. Every single person at Broadway Radio. (laughs)